Hello, welcome to Let's Talk Cancer by the Union for International Cancer Control, an organisation that unites and supports the cancer community to reduce the global cancer burden. I'm Kerry Adams and I'm the CEO of the UICC based here in sunny Geneva. At least 40% of all cancers can be prevented, according to WHO, by acting on modifiable risk factors such as tobacco consumption and nutrition. Last time, we looked at tobacco control, but today we will be looking at nutrition, obesity and metabolic disorders and their link with cancer. With us to discuss all of this is Dr. Elizabeth Vidapas, Director of the International Agency for Research on Cancer. So Elizabeth, it's absolute delight to, to have you with us. Good morning, Karian. It's a great pleasure to, to talk to you today. What are the links between nutrition and the, and the risks of developing in the first place and then surviving cancer? What, what is IARC's uh, perspective on that at the moment? IARC's Nutrition and Metabolism branch is quite unique because it addresses different aspects of how poor diet and poor lifestyle affect obesity and how obesity affects cancer and how diet and obesity can influence also cancer survival and, and development of cancer, the progression of cancer. So, for example, we study the effect of diet on inflammation because we know that inflammation causes cancer. And now we are studying how different nutrients and different food patterns can also cause inflammation and therefore cancer. And we have found an impact on inflammatory markers associated to diet and breast cancer risk in postmenopausal women. We have quite recently published about that. We are also doing lots of studies in what we call multi-morbidity. That means how people can have several diseases at the same time, including cancer, and how diet affects the risk of having these multiple diseases. And among all these diseases, what's very important, in fact, is type 2 diabetes. Obesity is a pandemic, it's all over the world, but also type 2 diabetes is a major challenge. And both obesity and type 2 diabetes are related to nutrition, to metabolism, to diet, and to cancer. You get the impression that we've made great advances in the last few years, actually, in this uh, domain of understanding the link between diet, obesity, and cancer. Is that the right perception? I think now we have a very clear picture that obesity is related to many cancer forms, and in fact, with more than we thought before, and the most important being colorectal cancer, breast cancer, but several other cancer forms as well. We are also now making advances in the understanding in the, in the role of ultra-processed foods and their impact on health, including in cancer. I don't know if you are familiar with this concept of ultra-processed foods, but basically these, these are all the foods that have a, a very large proportion of, of components such as sugar, uh, saturated and trans fatty acids, glycation products, which are pro-inflammatory, and how these foods put together can affect our health. So we have a whole series of research in this area now of ultra-processed foods, and we do find, of course, an, uh, a strong effect on obesity, on diabetes, and now we are increasingly finding an effect on cancer as well. Now, hopefully in time, uh, the general public will be better informed on what the impact is of the food that they're buying at a local supermarket will have potentially on their long-term health. 
IARC is, is world-renowned for top research in cancer, but you also play a role at the European level as well. I understand that you've contributed to the WHO European Regional Obesity Report 2022. Is there anything that's come out there which you think is important and, and could actually change the way that Europe approaches the issue of the links between nutrition and also obesity and cancer? It highlights the concern over the obesity pandemic uh, and the devastating effects it has on, on health, but in particularly in cancer incidence. So the report also set goals for obesity reduction as a major public health challenge in Europe and elsewhere. And it also it indicates that obesity actually starts early in life and that obesity in, in the life course throughout our lives is very important. It indicates how nutrition, diet, physical activity can be used to frame the pandemic and hopefully to reverse it. So I think what, what's important with this report is that it, it very clear indicates that we live in, in what we call an obesogenic environment. And this is this environment where food is available everywhere, but also unhealthy food habits are, are very prevalent in Europe. Our culture sometimes has a large influence in the way we nourish ourselves, in the way we eat and that we relate to food, and that we will need to work together as a society, including with industry actors, to combat the obesity pandemic. I think uh, most people will see me at the moment, Elizabeth, will say I'm carrying a few COVID kilos, having sat around for two years. But I mean, it's not just an individual choice, is it? I mean, governments can play a role here. We're well rehearsed in the commercial determinants of health. What can governments do, do you think, to address the issue of obesity? Because I'm not conscious of many countries that would be able to reverse the trend. We live in, in a world where obesity is, is pandemic, so it affects uh, most people. Actually, they, they, there's a very large proportion of people in each country which are obese. In some regions of the world, it's over 80% of the population. Some countries in the Middle East, in particular, face this problem. It's a major societal challenge. It's not only an individual and a family challenge, it's a societal challenge. I think governments can play a major role. They can play a role in, in first uh, addressing this in, at policy level. Because although the individual has a role, how he or she behaves with him or herself on the family, but also to the people need to have access to healthy food, which is uh, priced in a way that they can afford, and also that they are accessible close to where they live, so that they are able actually to buy it. We know that in some societies, healthy food is just not available. There are many areas where you cannot find healthy food, like fruits and vegetables, but you can find foods which are ultra-processed, which are at low price, and that many, many parts of society have to, to rely on that. So obesity is complex. There are multiple determinants. Most of them are societal, in fact, and the governments, unless they take this seriously, they will be faced with a tsunami of multimorbidity, including cancer associated with obesity and type 2 diabetes, and it will be extremely expensive uh, to the governments to tackle and very, very detrimental for overall life quality of uh, citizens and individuals. Well, one of the ways that the government, of course, can 
that respond to that challenge, Elizabeth, is to reduce the number of buy one, get one free and the multi-pack packages because they tend to be focused on the unhealthy foods, ironically. But we are seeing pressure in some governments to actually reverse those sort of controls that they were planning to put in because of the cost of living rises. It's difficult, isn't it, for a government because on one end they want to restrict the amount of poor quality food to people, but if prices are rising rapidly, as they are, for example, in the UK at the moment, then, of course, they can't really restrict access by increasing taxation or whatever it is on those those food products. That's a dilemma for governments, isn't it? How do they resolve that? Well, I think countries that have implemented taxation on foods of poor nutritional quality, it, this has been shown that it has a positive effect on the diet quality of populations without necessarily increasing costs. There are examples, for example, of taxation of sugary beverages in some countries and where this has been implemented, it has worked. So I think that it's a, it's a very good idea that governments do consider taxing foods with low nutritional content. That means foods in high sugar and with sweeteners, as well as high content of trans fat acids, which have proved to be very detrimental to cardiovascular health and other health outcomes, that these foods should be highly taxed. And this taxation could revert to subsidize foods of high quality, such as fruits and vegetables, in particularly for population targets that have difficulties in assess these high quality foods. I'm a strong believer that this taxation control on foods of poor quality, using the monies to subsidize high quality food, should be implemented across the world. What about the industry? What can governments do with industry to ensure that they take a more responsible approach to the way in which they preserve food, the way they package food, and the way they promote food? I believe the food industry has a major role to play, increasing the quality of nutrition worldwide together with governments. I believe it's very important that the colleagues from the food industry understand that it's in their interest, actually, to have healthier populations, populations that will be able to work more and to consume higher quality products. And for that, it's very important that the communication around the nutritional content of foods is transparent, is clear, and is scientifically based. I believe that very easy to understand food labeling, where citizens can understand the quality of the products they are buying and what's their effect on health is of utmost importance. In particular, we know that vulnerable groups of the population, children, toddlers, and young adults are very vulnerable to obesity. And once a child is obese, obesity is carried out throughout life. It's very difficult for an obese child to become a lean adult. So obesity must be avoided, in particular at young ages. And I believe that advertising of foods of poor quality to young children and children in general and young adults should be prohibited in most countries and at the very least be very strongly regulated. And I would like just to give you a, a very positive example, which is the government of Brazil. So the government of Brazil now has, has prohibited the, the selling and advertising, of course, of sugarly drinks at schools and in the Ministry of Health. So you cannot assess these sort of products that we know 
are obesogenic and they target young people and they cannot be assessed at, uh, at public settings such as the ones I mentioned. This sort of example could be replicated and will probably have an effect on, on the health of populations. We talk about obesity in the broader sense around the world, but of course the evidence suggests that it is becoming a, a larger issue in low middle income countries. It's occurring in a far more progressive way in countries which don't have the necessary infrastructure to deal with the cancer consequences of obesity. So is there anything we can do specifically in those areas? So I think in low and middle income countries, the advertising of foods of poor quality is much more disseminated in high income countries, including dissemination of uh, advertising for young children and uh, young adults. So I believe that this is one thing that should be in particular looked after, as well as availability of, for example, sugarly drinks at schools, distribution of, of sugarly drinks at school for young children, which of course creates a market of potential consumers of these products throughout life. I have the honor and the pleasure to live in the Middle East in past years, and I believe the Middle East is a place mostly of high-income countries, but they also have a major, major, major challenge with obesity. It's almost the reverse of the problem because people have access to very good nutritious and high quality food, but there is a, a disincentive in a way to do physical activity. So physical activity is, is very rare. And I believe also there, governments have a major role to play to, in terms of population education, but also to, to work with schools, with workplaces to implement more programs to help people to take good choices and in particular to do more physical activity and make the ambiences actually feasible for people to be physically active, for example, by walking, biking and so on. Obesity starts early in life and it's the same in smoking. The tobacco sector is very keen to get young smokers starting early so their addiction lasts a lifetime and the return on investment of that marketing is enormous. There are stigmas attached to smokers who then develop cancer, uh, lung cancer predominantly of course. Do you feel that we run the risk that obese people, through potentially no fault of their own, are stigmatized? And when they do get cancer or another entity or diabetes, it is very much blamed on them, rather than people being conscious that society itself has created an environment where it's, in some ways, quite difficult not to put on weight. How do you feel we can deal with that? So stigma surrounding obesity is really it's hurtful and it's unfair. Because as we discussed, we know that obesity has many determinants and some, some of the determinants are, for example, genetic. And there are multiple other determinants that might be extremely difficult to, to tackle at individual level. Information, education and speaking about the harmful effects of obesity, of course, it is important, but in a non judgmental way and always providing information to, to empower people and societies to take uh, choices which are pro-health. I think this would be the, the attitude to, to make. So always supporting and empowering individuals.
I think I agree with you there, absolutely. We are delighted to know that you will be uh, one of our plenary speakers at the World Cancer Congress in Geneva in October. And we've given you the daunting, daunting task to talk about the progress that we can see in innovation in cancer care in the future. It's a very broad topic, but uh, what are the sort of things you th- you're optimistic about in the next 10 years, which you think we'll, you'll be talking about with the other panelists at uh, the World Cancer Congress? I'm so excited to to be able to participate in the UICC World Cancer Congress. This will be a party. It will be a cancer research party. I will put my focus on, on what we call implementation research. That means to take the knowledge that we are developing as a research community and how to implement this on the ground for the benefit of populations and the individuals, of course. So I will also talk a little bit about the challenges of cancer in Europe. Europe has a very large burden of cancer. So we have only 10% of the population worldwide, but we have about 25% of the whole cancer burden. I look forward to seeing you in October in Geneva at the Congress. The Beating uh, Cancer Plan for Europe has inspired us to have another plenary based on that inspiration to say, what else can we do at regional levels? So we'll be talking about that at least twice during the Congress. Elizabeth, as ever, it's great talking to you. Thank you very much to you, IARC, and all the team there for the great work that you do. You are a fantastic partner, companion to UICC and all its members, and uh, I look forward to seeing you next time around. Thank you very much. See you soon in Geneva. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Cancer. If you like this podcast, please subscribe for more content from tobacco control to cancer prevention, treatment and care.